According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can turn to Luke chapter 5 this morning. Luke chapter 5, where we are reading the account of the four becoming fishers of men. Luke chapter 5. Good to be back in Austin. Appreciate Glenn Carnegie filling in for me on Sunday. And uh, appreciate having the freedom to uh, go down to Brazoria County and participate with Gulf Coast Bible Church down there in their celebration for Emil and Evelyn Schmidt's 50th wedding anniversary. And uh, what, a, what a delight that was. All right, Luke chapter 5. Before we do any of this, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to set aside distractions, sanctify our thinking, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before your presence, recognizing that you are holy and that, Father, apart from the gifts of your grace, we have no standing in your presence. But by virtue of your provision and grace, we have every standing. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together this morning and to receive instruction. We thank you, Father, just as you have called these men we're looking at this morning to become fishers of men. Uh, Father, so too are we called to be fishers of men. And I pray that we might be impacted by our study this morning of the Metacoi and the Quinanoi. And that we might learn what these principles are all about, not only for them, in their day, but for us as well. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 5 is our text this morning. I anticipate we're going to be very grammatical this morning, in which case we run the risk of putting everybody to sleep. But uh, at the risk of doing that, I still want to be able to, to communicate the full impact of what it means to be a metacos, what it means to be metakoi, and uh, what it means to be partakers. Effectively, I've just said the same thing three different ways. We are all partakers of Jesus Christ, in which case we have fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so these principles then become very important. This is an incident in uh, the Life of Christ series. It's the fourth chapter in the uh, Galilean ministry. And so I'll go ahead and get our slideshow back up here so we have uh, the material that we're dealing with. Appreciate having a sound engineer this morning. So if something goes wrong with the tape or with the recording, he'll be spotting that for us. All right, incident number four in the Galilean ministry of Jesus. The four become fishers of men. It has an account in Matthew and Mark as well as in Luke. We are primarily examining the Luke account, although we will, uh, at the end of this, pick up a couple of glimpses from both Matthew and Mark, and I believe we read all three uh, passages last week. So let's just pick it up here in Luke chapter 5. It happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying on the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. See, they had just been in the shallow water just a short 
little stretch off from the from the beach so that they could uh, he could be separated from those that were gathering around him and yet still communicate to them. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. See, what's the difference between success and failure in secular life? What's the difference in success versus failure in your workplace, in your careers, and so forth? We don't always understand it because we try to gauge success versus failure in materialistic terms, in terms of how much money you make or uh, earthly standards for results. In which case, this passage here is one that will help us to recognize that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. That uh, no good thing does the Lord withhold from those who who uh, walk uprightly. That as far as whether we reap or we don't reap, that's his business to provide or to withhold. See, we want to recognize the spiritual sovereignty of our Father and what he provides based upon his wisdom. Not what we've earned, not what we've deserved, not how smart we are, not um, our business savvy or any other type of thing. It's his Grace to supply, or is His grace to withhold? And grace does both, by the way. We'll be tackling some of those issues as well. Sometimes the Father will deliberately withhold as He is working to promote a uh, a discontent, a dissatisfaction, as He's working in the life of a man to help him wake up and realize that he's not where he needs to be, that he's pursuing earthly things and he needs to be pursuing spiritual things, that he's being set apart for the ministry, so to speak. And that word, the ministry, that we tend to so often limit to pastors and evangelists, missionaries and so forth, we're going to start to recognize that the ministry is all of us. Each one of us has a ministry, and it may not be to the point where we are separated from secular work. We may still be engaged in secular work, while at the same time we're pursuing the ministry. So uh, I think as we pursue this study this morning, we're going to do ourselves a lot of favors in defining the terminology and recognizing what it is that we've been called to do. All right, so here's all the fish. And Simon, the expert fisherman, can't understand. And then he begins to understand. And that's why he falls on his face and says, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. But let's uh, key in on a couple of items here because they're, uh, they're overwhelmed here. The nets begin to break in verse 6. So they signal to their partners. And much of today is going to focus in on the word partners from verse 7. They signal to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. This was not just a single boat fishing operation. This was a multi-boat fleet, a flotilla of uh, multiple fishing boats, a consortium, so to speak, including multiple families. They signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and to help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. So they solved the the nets are breaking problem uh, by bringing in additional uh, boats and adding additional nets and actually helping to get the fish out of those nets. But having solved the net-breaking problem, now they're introduced to the boat-sinking problem. (laughs) Because by getting the fish out of the nets and and filling the nets even more and getting those fish out of the nets and filling the nets even more and getting those fish out of the nets, now all of a sudden the boat capacity is being overwhelmed. And the boats are now in trouble. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. 
O Lord, the Lord there being stated twice in verse 8. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. Now this is remarkable. When God is working in your life, we should expect this amazement. But we shouldn't depend on it. We shouldn't crave after it. We shouldn't lust after it. All too often, this is the Achilles heel in Pentecostal circles among charismatic believers as they start to crave this uh, this amazement. They start to need to have the emotion stoked. They need to have the the raw, raw enthusiasm going. For uh, many charismatic Christians, it's a constant pep rally seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. They have to keep that excitement, that, that zeal, that fervor thriving, or else they feel that there's something wrong with them, that somehow the spirit has been quenched, that somehow they're not spirit-filled if they're not jazzed all the time. And so it, it really becomes a very difficult thing to try to maintain. Now, having said that, I think some believers go too far the other direction where they don't ever want to have any kind of experience. They don't ever want to have any kind of uh, amazement or charge or zeal or anything because then all of a sudden they start to feel that, oh, well, wait a minute, something's wrong. See, because they want to simply approach it on an intellectual basis and deny any kind of emotional passion or any kind of charge or any kind of amazement. And I think this passage here clearly states there has to be some form of amazement at some point when God is getting your attention and making it very clear that this is divine guidance. This is what he wants you to do. So, as in all things, there is a balance between extremism on either direction. Amazement had seized him. Thaumadzo, and there's, I think it's Thaumadzo there, and there's... uh, uh, an interesting word study and one that uh, we're not really going to plunge into at this point. But believe me, we have many, many opportunities to plunge into that throughout the life of Christ. Now, we in verse 9, we have the term companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. In verse 10, and so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So we have partners both in verse 7 and in verse 10. And these are the terms we're going to key in on for our study here this morning. We're not going to deal with companions so much in verse 9 because we all have companions in various places. You've got companions in school, companions in the neighborhood, companions in the workplace. But partnership where we have the metakoi and we have the quinanoi principles there, this is something that we share by virtue of our position in Christ. And that's what I want to key in on as as a part of this study. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. All right, so there's our text. The Luke account is the fullest, but the Matthew and Mark uh, records supply additional details. The setting for this episode is the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Lake of Gennesaret, such as in our Luke account here. Elsewhere, this body of water is known as the Sea of Tiberias, and that's how it's referred to by John in his writings, chapter 6 and chapter 21 of the Gospel of John. We have no problem identifying all three titles for the same body of water, and we understand why they have different uh, terms for this location. Nazareth featured an angry mob attempting to press Christ off a cliff, but Capernaum featured a hungry mob pressing Christ for more teaching. And that's quite a contrast between Nazareth and Capernaum. And in Nazareth, they were going to push him off a cliff. Here, it seems as if he's getting pushed off to the 
you know, right by the water. So he gets in a boat and he gets about five feet away. And now they ha- they can't press up against him anymore. Now they just have to stand there and listen or have a seat and listen and so forth. But the the, the visual imagery of this I find quite interesting. Rather than attending Bible class, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were busy working. And we spotlighted that not only here in Luke 5, but also in the Matthew parallel account. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with this, that they have careers to follow, that they should be working during the day. Maybe they go to Bible class at night and what have you. This is not necessarily anything wrong with what they're doing, but it does indicate that this is what they're leaving behind when they do follow him to become full-time students. That in, in the call to become disciples, they are leaving their secular work and that they're being supported by Christ. And how is he supporting them? By those that are supporting him. See, and there's a very interesting pattern here. It's remarkable. We, uh, we uh, don't necessarily apply this today, and, and perhaps we should be. We think about we support our pastor, all right, but are we, uh, there was a time when, of course, the church was too small to do even that. See, there was a time prior to 2000 where the pastor was working outside the church to support his family and so forth. But do we carry that? That model that we see here, do we carry that into uh, the, the preparation time before they become pastors? How about while they're seminary students? Why is it that while they're seminary students, that they're, they're working full time, they're working nights, they're working other jobs, trying to feed their family, trying to raise their kids and do all this other stuff while they're still supposed to be studying and preparing for the ministry? Wouldn't it be better if they could be supported perhaps on a missionary basis, perhaps on a uh, some other fashion where maybe they're put on staff, they're salaried as an assistant pastor or what have you because they're students. And that frees them up to study, frees them up to take their classes, to do their homework, to concentrate on their on pursuing their gift and not worrying about their family starving to death while they're doing this. All right? And I think there's there's an attitude, and I'm not... I'm not speaking of this group or any group in particular. I'm just speaking in general that, okay, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And they want to apply that. You know, we're not going to muzzle the ox. The, uh, the laborer is worthy of his wages. But in our mind, that's only later. That's only after he's proven that he's, you know, he's a bona fide pastor and he's, he's in the ministry and he's benefiting us. And since he's benefiting us, then, okay, now we'll start to support him financially. See, I think... There may be um, a lot of men that burn out, a lot of men that don't get to graduation, they don't get to the local church, they don't get to the pastorate because they were killing themselves in seminary, they were killing themselves in college trying, first of all, to get their undergraduate degree and then trying to get admitted to the seminary and then trying to graduate with their seminary credentials while at the same time working full-time hours. And they're killing themselves doing this. All right. Anyway, these are things that I hope we can glean and hope we can learn some of these lessons in particular as we are considering the various uh, areas of ministry that we want to pursue on uh, on uh, an expansion basis as the Lord blesses. And if we expand this facility, we move to another facility and the uh, the Bible college, we would like to get started in the, uh, the, the training of men. What uh, What are our spiritual priorities as we train men for the ministry? Here we see that these men are leaving their secular careers so that they can be students. And then at some point, they're going to be apostles. They're going to be ministers of the, of the Word of God. Jesus asked Peter to provide logistical assistance. 
for his teaching ministry. Jesus asked Peter to provide logistical assistance for his teaching ministry. And here it's just as simple as, you know, putting the boat out. Putting the boat out, getting a few feet off ashore, dropping the anchor, keeping the boat steady. And, you know, in terms of a local church, it's unlocking the doors, turning on the lights, making sure the air conditioning is going, running the recording desk, um, you know, sweeping the floors, cleaning the bathrooms, dumping the trash, changing the diapers, all kinds of things that go on around here. And deacons and others that step up to help do these administrative functions, to help do these uh, other tasks, mean, means that the pastor has time to study and teach and minister, and he's not worried about, uh, did I pay the electric bill this month? See, well, because the deacons are doing that. They're opening the mail. They're paying the electrical bill. They're doing all this other stuff. And in part, this then becomes the training for Peter for down the road, for when he's in his own ministry, for when he's an apostle. See, he has a background in helping, in serving and so forth. Uh, Peter, the evangelist or uh, Philip, the evangelist before that was Philip, the deacon. See, Stephen was a deacon, and had he not been martyred there in Acts chapter 7, what might he have gone on to do in his own ministry? We know he was a tremendous Bible teacher and preacher because we saw his uh, his sermon there on the day he died. So what might he have done after his, his deaconing days and so forth? So, in any event, these are the circumstances here. After the public Bible class is over, Jesus has a private lesson for his future apostles. And this is where we left off under points, subpoints A and B. Subpoint A, their secular work the previous night was fruitless. Not only examining this passage here, but also Psalm 127 and verse 2. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. If, if God's not blessing your endeavors, they won't be blessed. And if you find you're spinning your wheels and not getting anywhere, that's an indicator. That's a clue. That you should evaluate what you're doing and, and find why it's not consistent with what God's blessing. And then line yourself up with what God's blessing. Say, all too often I think believers want to do what they're going to do and then ask God to bless it. Say, well, why, why do I want God to bless it? Well, because that's what I'm doing. Say, so God, can't you bless this? If it could be in your will, would you bless this? And so we want to direct his permissive will to what we're doing because this is what we're doing. Based on what we want to do, based on us, based on whatever. And so we ask, if it could be your will, you know, can we direct your permissive will to bless this? When, why don't we start the other way around and start with God's directive will? Because that's what he will bless. He will always bless in his directive will. So, instead of taking what I'm doing and asking him to incorporate that within permissive will and bless it, why don't I examine what his directive will is? Line myself up with that. And then ask him to bless his directive will. Just a thought. Under point B, Simon's partners are about to become Metakoi and Quinanoi of Jesus Christ. And so in this message today, I want to focus on these two terms. Metakoi and Quinanoi. Simon's partners. They're called Metakoi in verse 7. They're called Quinanoi in verse 10. Simon's partners, Metakoi and Quinanoi, are about to become Metakoi and Quinanoi of Jesus Christ. Christ. So under subpoint one now, let's deal with metakos. M-E-T-O-C-H-O-S, metakos. A partner partaker. We identified last week that this was a typo. It's not uh, Luke 1, 7. It's Luke 5, 7. All right. 
partaker or partner. That's a metakos. Luke 5, 7, Hebrews 1, 9, 3, 1, and 14, Hebrews 6, 4, Hebrews 12, 8. And I'm going to go ahead and switch off of the slideshow at this point. So we can go to Luke 5, 7. And we'll just do a right-click search on this, and we'll bring all the verses up. And this will be the fastest way, probably, to, uh, to take a look at it. Let's go ahead and find Metakoi right there. It's in the dative plural, Metakois. That's not a problem. We'll select the text of Metakos, and we'll search this resource. This then will make it the fastest way possible to find the uses of Metakos. Luke 5, 7, Hebrews 1, 9. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your metakoi, above your companions. And that's a citation from the Psalms. But take a note how it addresses God, your God. You notice that? A lot of folks uh, overlook this principle when they try to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Here is God being addressed, and yet His God, that is, God the Son in submission to God the Father, and recognizing that it's God, very God, who's ruling, and yet He's ruling in obedience to His Father's directions, in obedience to His Father's commands. And so uh, Hebrews 1.9 is... Uh, is a good reference for that. It's a citation from Psalm 45 and verse 7. All right, not only is it in Hebrews 1, 9, but we have it twice in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 14. Hebrews 3, 1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, and that's you and I, holy brethren. What a blessing we have in the church that our position is not dependent upon who our father is, who, what tribe we come from. All right. <laughs> Not like in Israel, where every Jewish believer then could identify with their father, with their family, with their clan, and with their tribe. And they knew that they were uh, going to be blessed as a part of the nation of Israel in, the, say, the tribe of Judah, say, in the clan of Ephrathah, say, in the family of David. All right. And they knew that they were, uh, that that was their position in their stewardship. Well, you and I don't have that. We have a heavenly calling. We have a heavenly stewardship. Ours is a, uh, is a stewardship that's not dependent upon earthly birth. See, so whatever clan you're from, whatever tribe you're from, say maybe you're a German tribe like I am or some other Gentile dog, uh, mongrel race. See, it doesn't matter. We are holy brethren. We're not earthly brethren. We're holy brethren. Partakers of a heavenly calling. Partakers of a heavenly calling. So there's your uh, Adelphoi Hagioi, holy brethren. And there's Kleseos calling, Epurinu, heavenly partakers. There's your Metakoi right there in Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider. Put some thought. I Meditate. Dwell upon, occupy with. This is where uh, pastors have taught occupation with Christ after so many hours of study. Occupy with, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. See, 
Israel and their stewardship, they had a priesthood. They had a high priest. And that high priest appeared in the presence of God on their behalf. We likewise have a, a priesthood. In fact, we're in the priesthood. And we have a high priest, like they did. But we also have, he's not just the high priest of our confession, he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. A lot of times uh, people overlook this verse when they start to list the apostles. And they want to list, they want to limit the apostles only to the twelve. And they deny that Barnabas was an apostle. They deny that James was an apostle or Jude was an apostle. They deny that uh, these other not, uh, apostles beyond the twelve could have been apostles. And they'll put their foot down and say, there were only twelve, that's all there ever are. And that Matthias thing was wrong in Acts chapter 1. Paul was the twelfth. Paul was the replacement for Judas. And they firmly insist upon that. They say, oh, okay, then those are the only twelve, huh? Well, what about Jesus Christ? He was an apostle. And I can prove that from Hebrews 3.1. The apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in his house. I'm looking forward to these classes uh, being taught by Glenn Carnegie and the superiority of Christ, superior to the angels, superior to the uh, superior in this context, superior to Moses. Moses was faithful as a servant, it says in verse 5, but Christ was faithful as a son, it says in verse 6. The other use of metakoi here in chapter 3 comes down in verse 14. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And here's Metacoy right there in verse 14. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now we start to examine some concepts here of partakers. Partakers where some people will relate it as uh, equivalent to being saved. Some people say, well, if I'm saved, then I'm a partaker. Okay? But this is a verse that would seem to indicate otherwise. That not every believer is truly a partaker. Just as not every believer is a disciple. Jesus Christ said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So there's a whole spectrum of believers that are not disciples. They're regenerate. They're born again. They're going to go to heaven when they die. They're in the bride of Christ. They can't lose their salvation, but they're not disciples. Because to be a disciple, you have to abide in God's Word. You have to bear much fruit. John chapter 15 says, uh, By this my Father is glorified that you abide in me and, and that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So if you're not abiding in the Word of God and you're not bearing fruit, then you're not a disciple. That's plain. Now, you can still be born again. You can believe in Jesus Christ, go to heaven when you die. But that's different. Being a believer is different from being a disciple. And that's why here lately I've started to use that term regenerate, that is born again. Because uh, people are confused when they say, well, they try to blend the terms of disciple with somebody who's regenerate. Say. And I think even the term believer is sometimes misleading because a regenerate person can fall into unbelief. 
as we see in uh, Hebrews 5 and elsewhere, the danger of unbelief, the unbelief of the believer, where you just stop walking in faith. You go back to your vomit. You go back to the, the mire, and you quit walking by faith. You start walking by sight again. And the unbelief of a believer is a terrible snare. Not that you lose salvation, you're still regenerate, but you're no longer walking by faith. So, we want to start thinking about metakoi as not a synonym for believers. Metakoi is not necessarily a synonym for holy brethren. Now, we want it to be. We want, and in verse 1, he uses them in parallel, because every metakos is an adelphos, every all the Metacoi are also Adelphoi. They are brethren, holy brethren. But not every holy brethren is a Metacos. And that's going to become crucial. Because here in verse 14, we start to recognize that, there are, that, that being a partaker is indeed conditional. It is indeed if we hold fast. It is indeed... The idea of being a partaker is indeed willing to be a partaker, which includes the sufferings. Now, some believers aren't willing to, to be sharers in the sufferings, in which case they're not partakers. Let's get some more of these references, and hopefully that will become clear. Next use comes in chapter 6. Now, let me go back to that last one. Um, back in chapter 3 and verse 14. Because one other item there, what happens if we don't? <laughs> it says, consider Jesus. Well, what happens if I don't? What if I don't occupy with Christ? Uh, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. All right, when we have an imperative like this, a prohibition like this, when the Bible says, do not harden your hearts, what does that mean? Okay, but it also means that volitionally you can do so. Volitionally, it is within the realm of possibility for you to harden your heart. You can quench the Holy Spirit. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can resist the Holy Spirit. You can take off the armor. You can plunge into carnality. Volitionally, you can do all of this. Volitionally, you can harden your heart. And that's a, Now, do you lose salvation? Of course not. This passage has nothing to do with salvation. This does have everything to do, though, with embracing the, the, the partaker, being a metakoi, being a partaker for reward. Not believer for salvation, but a partaker for reward. And so the folks that look at this and they try to use verse 14 as a salvation thing and say, see, you can lose your salvation. If you don't hold fast to the end, then you've lost your salvation. No. Get the whole context and see where chapter 3 fits within the framework of chapter 1, chapter 2, and what comes after in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And you'll know this has nothing to do with salvation, but it has everything to do with reward. And the snare is, is falling short. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for those 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The unbelief of the believer. And realize, nobody went back to Egypt. They all came through the Red Sea, and when they failed in their unbelief, 
They didn't lose their salvation. They weren't restored back to Egypt in a bondage status. They died in the wilderness. They failed to enter into rest. They failed to enter into the promised land. See, And that, that example of the wilderness generation, the exodus, and then into the wilderness generation, that example is the pattern for us in terms of salvation. We can't go back to Egypt. The, the, the Red Sea is a one-way door out of, out of Egypt. You can't go back to Egypt. You can't go back to being unregenerate. You can't go back to being an unbeliever. But you can fail to enter into rest. You can fail to you can fall short in eternal rewards. You can fall short in victory. You can fall short in glory. And that is, you can die the sin unto death. You can plunge into unbelief. And just as they died in the wilderness, you can spiral out and go out a loser in the angelic conflict. Now, we don't want to do that. That's why, in part, why the emphasis in these early chapters of Hebrews is saying, stay the course, grow in the grace knowledge. You, by now you should be teachers. Do not harden your heart. And it's day after day as long as it is called today. And this is the, uh, the falling short that we uh, are to be concerned about. That's how chapter 4 begins. Therefore, let us fear. It's the fear of the Lord. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. And this is the falling short that believers in the church age need to be concerned about. I'm, I'm concerned with a godly fear about falling short of his rest. Falling short of glory. Falling short of work that he has for me to do. Reward that he has laid up for me. Treasure that he has laid up for me. And falling short of that because of my own unbelief. My own lack of faith. I'm no longer worked up about Romans 3.23, about all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. I'm no longer worried about that. I'm past that falling short verse because I'm saved. I'm regenerate. Now the falling short I'm worried about is this one. Falling short of glory. Falling short of the reward that I could be obtaining for the glory of our Savior. Not entering into rest is the, uh, is the imagery there. In any event... As I say, Glenn Carnegie is developing this, and we will have more to say on that when he gets to these particular chapters. All right, chapter 6 and verse 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, that's salvation, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, that's the recipient of the spiritual gift, the recipient of the Holy Spirit, the grace salvation package that happens the moment you're saved, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Here's Metakoi again, partakers. And uh, a full study on Metakoi is going to include not only partakers of Christ, but partakers of the Holy Spirit, as this verse speaks of, also partakers of the Father. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. And this goes on to the aspects of hardness of heart. And the sin and the death for the believer. And what are they going to do? It's another passage where some skeptics try to use it as a grounds for losing salvation. Nothing to do with that. It has to do with, are you a medicoy or not? Are you a partaker of Christ? Are you going to achieve rewards? Or are you going to spire, uh, spin out of uh, the faith and, uh, and go out a loser in the angelic conflict? Likewise, chapter 12. 
here's the passage that reminds us why we should be thankful for divine discipline. Verse 7 says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's a rhetorical question. The answer to that is, the son who, who the father doesn't discipline is the son who the father doesn't love. Verse 8 says, If you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, metakoi, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. See, those are harsh words. It means that I should learn to embrace the discipline when God loves me enough to not be content with where I am. Human beings get content with where they are. (laughs) And we get fat, dumb, and happy, and lazy, and we say, well, I'm okay. I'm not so bad. I'm better than the next guy. God looks at you and says, no, you're not what you're supposed to be. You're not what you're going to be. There's more work to do. And so he disciplines. To become partakers of discipline. That's, uh, again, the metacoy there in verse 8. All right, these are our uses of metacoy. And I'll click that little button there, and we'll go back to our text. The verb form of, medico, of metakos is meteko, M-E-T-E-C-H-O, meteko. 33.48, verb form. And as you might expect, since the noun is partaker or partner, the verb means to partake, to participate in, to partake. That is to engage in such activity. 1 Corinthians 9 Verse 10 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians 10. Three times there. Verse 17, 21, and 30. And then three more applications in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews was fond of this, uh, of this particular root. Hebrews 2.4. Hebrews 5.13. Hebrews 7.13. Mateka, number 33.48. And again, we can run through the verses. We can run through the verses simply by searching for Mateco. Our first use is, what did I say? 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 10. All right, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 10. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. That is, partaking in the crops. And there's an infinitive. Metekin is the infinitive of meteko. And so let's just do a little speed search here on meteko. And we'll get our verse list set up here once again. It's used in verse 10. It's used in verse 12. Is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops, partaking in the crops. I mean, what a bummer to work all season long, to clear the land, to, to prepare the land, to sow the seed, to water it, to nurture it, to watch it grow, to patiently reap the crop, to harvest it, to thresh it, to sift it, to store it, and then have somebody take it all away. And you you don't have any partaking in that hard work. See, it's one of the uh, 
cycles of discipline upon a nation when they do not get to reap the benefit of their agriculture. They do not get to reap the benefit of their, of their industry. When a foreign nation is plundering the benefit of their agriculture and their industry is one of the cycles of, of, uh, of uh, divine discipline upon a nation. Well, obviously, the farmer wants to partake in what he's doing. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? You know, here's Paul speaking as an apostle saying, you know, we're ministering the word of God, which is going to have an eternal value. Should you not be motivated to return a, a temporal benefit that we might not starve to death while we're feeding you the word of God? If others share the right over you, do we not uh, more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And um, the uh, issues there. All right. Verse 13. If others share this right over you, and that's um, metakoi, uh, meteko, share the right over you to, to partake in that right. There were plenty that were coming in there and charging the Corinthians. And they started to use that as an accusation against Paul. You know, a speaker would come to town and he was very known for his rhetoric. He was well known for his wisdom. And he would be willing to speak. But of course, that fee was agreed to up front. And he would have that right to demand it. And the more noteworthy they were, the more respected they were, the higher price they could claim. And it starts to become a, part, a, a note of pride. And people would say, oh, we need to get this guy. He commands this kind of price. And they started to adopt that cosmos wisdom, that worldly approach, and they look at Paul and say, wait a minute, Paul never charged us anything. Because <laughs> Paul was functioning on the basis of grace. He never charged us anything. He must not be worth it. He must not be a very good speaker. He must not be worth listening to. If he really knew what he was talking about, he should be charging top dollar, top denarius. He should be charging top denarius for his, for his uh, speaking. Why is it that he never requested anything and just function on a grace basis and say, well, whatever you whatever you desire in grace after he's done. So they viewed that as a mark of of uh, uh, a mark against him. They viewed that as a negative thing. And Paul says, you guys just don't understand grace. That's a positive thing. And so it goes on to describe this here. He says, nevertheless, we did not use this right. We endure all things so we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. If money is going to be the issue, well, then forget it. Don't want it to be a stumbling block. I won't even bring it up ever again. So there's the verb meteko that's used there. It's used in chapter 10 three times. Verse 17, verse 21, and verse 30. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In the context there, do we partake? Think about what we do as we partake of the communion table think about what we're doing think about the reality not the ritual i mean the the the, the ritual is is simple you're, you're sitting in a chair you're munching on a unleavened wafer all right which is a tiny little thing it takes about three bites and you swallow it and done big deal what's the spiritual reality behind the ritual 
What are you truly partaking of? And what are you declaring as we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes? When we are functioning, not only in the physical realm, but the spiritual realm, when we are declaring that we are partakers of the bread, but we go out and we live our lives as anything but partakers of Jesus Christ. That's defiling the table. Uh, other uses of meteko uh, here in chapter 10 include verse 21 and verse 30. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And that also is a partaking. And then finally, verse 30 in this context. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? This will come up when we deal with the law of love and the law of liberty with meat sacrificed to idols. If you partake or if you don't partake, do so for divine reasons. Do so with thankfulness. If you choose to eat the meat sacrificed to idols, partake with thankfulness. If you choose to abstain from meat sacrificed with idols, then abstain with thankfulness. Do so for the glory of Jesus Christ. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do or don't do, do all or don't do all, for the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of God. The, the uh, Hebrews uses of Meteco, Hebrews 2, 4, uh, 14. Since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Jesus Christ partook of humanity. He didn't enter into the world as the angel of the Lord. He didn't enter into the world as a walking, burning bush, or he didn't enter into the world as a cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. When he came for the purpose of redemption, he entered into the world as a babe in the manger. He partook of humanity. He was born. He grew up. He suffered. He died. He partook of flesh and blood. He partook of humanity. So that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We'll be back in things on propitiation Sunday morning when we deal with the works of God and removing the barrier stones. Since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. What a perfect advocate. He is able to intercede. He knows our weaknesses because he partook of humanity. We're supposed to partake of him. We should be partakers of his sufferings. Are we willing to take up our cross and follow him? Or we say, uh, no thanks, I'd rather abstain. Well, then you're not a medicos. The medicoi are the ones that are promised the rewards. Medicoi are the ones that are promised the, uh, the crowns and glory. In fact, the consequences for those that are redeemed and yet not medicoi are uh, extraordinary. And uh, we'll take a look perhaps at some of that here this morning and next week. All right, uh, that's chapter 2 and verse 4, reference being Christ. Chapter 5 and verse 13. 
Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The word of God has to be partaken of not only the milk, but eventually the meat. And you should be growing up. You shouldn't just stay a babe and be content with milk. See, by this time you ought to be teachers and not simply partaking of milk only. Chapter 7 and verse 13. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from whom no one has officiated on the altar. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, partakes of another tribe. In other words, he partakes the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. If he was on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. And those things there. All right. So we have our verb. We have our noun. Another noun form is metake, feminine ending, M-E-T-O-C-H-E, which doesn't refer to the person doing the partaking, but it refers to the partaking itself, the fellowship, the partaking. Second Corinthians 6.14, partnership. What partnership has Christ with Belial? What fellowship? In fact, it uses both Medica and Quinonia in that verse. Second Corinthians 6.14. So the only place it's used in the New Testament. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership? That's Medica. For what partnership? have unrighteousness and lawlessness. Or what fellowship? That's the second term we're going to get into when we start getting into our koinonos terminology. Has this been too small the entire time? I should have increased the size half an hour ago. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And... We'll even do this. Partnership. Metacoy. What, what metacoy? What partnership does the dikaios, the dikaiosune righteousness have with anomia, with lawlessness? Or what uh, fellowship? It's going to be our next term. Quenonia. Has phos with skatos. Light with darkness. Alright? Photos. We're going to get photography. Light with darkness. Partnership, fellowship. We are both partners and we're also in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Both of those terms are a part of this study. The metakoi and koinonoi. Peter's metakoi and koinonoi were about to become metakoi and koinonoi of Jesus Christ. And here in this verse, we have both uh, metakoi and koinonoi in their noun forms. What partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? So if you and I are going to become metakoi and koinonoi of Jesus Christ, can we have anything to do with darkness? Can we partake of lawlessness? Are we to be partakers of righteousness and partakers of um, light, walking as children of light? What harmony has Christ with Belial? And there's another term. In addition to metakoi and koinonia, here's a term here. 
symphonia, where we get symphony. What symphony has harmony, has Christ with Belial? See, kind of like when you listen to the His Way Quartet or you listen to one of these other groups, and we're going to have a performance at the end of July with His Way and with uh, a Baptist group that's coming in here to, to sing with them. And uh, when all the voices are coming together as they should, when they're coming together correctly, in complementary uh, symphony with one another, then it's harmony. But a voice that's out of tune, a voice that's out of, uh, that's on the wrong key or singing on a different chord or doing something totally on its own, that's disharmony. That's discord. That's somebody who's not walking in the light. That's somebody who's not having fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. That's somebody who's walking in darkness. That's not what we're called to do. Fellowship. We have a compound of metakos, sum metakos, a joint partaker. When you add the sum prefix on front of anything, it means together with, like sum pathos, sympathy. That means I have feelings together with somebody. Sum patheo, all right? Sum metakos is a joint partaker. Ephesians 3.6 and Ephesians 5.7. Ephesians 3.6 and Ephesians 5.7. Sum metakos, 48.30 in the Strong's Index. Joint partaker. Let me get to Ephesians here. Chapter 3 and verse 6 says, To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Fellow partaker, joint partaker. Chapter 5 and verse 7. Verse 6 says, well, let's see. Verse, chapter 5 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality, that's fornication or impurity or greed, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. See, this says not only do we not fornicate, but we have a reputation as such to keep that free from accusations. To not even be named among you. That's where you have not only, not only do you abstain from evil, but you abstain from every appearance of evil. That's where you want to have not even the appearance of impropriety. That's why you want to take steps to where not only are you not engaged in this stuff, which is clearly sin, but you don't even want to be kind of approaching that line where you might be flirting with disaster, where you might be allowing critics or skeptics to make such accusations. There must uh, be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no fornicator, immoral or impure person or covetous man, coveter, an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now, once you're regenerate, you're no longer positionally in any of these categories. 
Say, you, maybe you used to be a fornicator. Maybe you used to be idolatrous. Maybe you used to be a thief or what have you. But when you were washed, when you were sanctified, when you were justified, all of that was cleared by the cross. Now you are a saint in Christ. But even though you're a saint in Christ, you can still go back to your vomit. You can still commit personal sins. You can still be a partaker with these who have no inheritance of eternal life. You can become a partaker of the activities of an unbeliever. Again, when God gives a prohibition, when He says do not, it means volitionally you can. When it says do not be a partaker, volitionally you can be a partaker. You can go back to this way of life. You can go back to these actions. You can partake of those things, even though, obviously, you don't lose your salvation. Do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This is what you are, so walk that way. That's the pattern of grace. The pattern of law says, this is what you want to earn or to deserve, so walk this way so that you can earn or deserve it. No. Grace says, this is what you are, walk accordingly. That's a huge difference. Not trying to earn something or measure up to something, but you're already given it up front, and now you can live accordingly. And that turns it around backwards from law. Grace turns it around in a, in a much better direction. Really, a much better direction. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, and do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. So, let's take note that partakers in verse 7 is related to participation in verse 11. And it focuses upon the, our actions in time. The, our activity in the Christian way of life. And it has nothing to do with placing your faith in Christ and getting saved. This has nothing to do with phase one. This is all about phase two. This is all about how you're living the Christian way of life. We all are regenerate. We're all believers. We're all born again. We're all going to go to heaven when we die. But are we all partakers of Jesus Christ? Are we holding fast? Are we walking in the light? Are we abstaining from every form of evil? Are we truly partakers? Because it's the partakers that are the rewarded ones. Good. All right. We got through all that. Next week, we will come back and tackle koinonos, partner, companion. It's our term for fellowship. When we have fellowship, that's koinonia. When we are in Bible class, that's teaching. All right. That's didache. When we're in prayer, that's prayer. When we're at the Lord's table, that's the Lord's table. When we're at fellowship, that's koinonia. And uh, that's Acts 2.42. That's our purpose for Austin Bible Church. It's on the front of every church bulletin, I think. Used to be. Yeah, there it is, our activities. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And that's why our activities at Austin Bible Church are Bible class, prayer meetings, communion services, and fellowship. But fellowship is quinonia. It's not chit-chatting about sports and politics, talking about the weather and drinking coffee. <laughs> well, we'll learn that next week when we study Koinonia. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Father, for the teaching principles of the Metacoy. And I pray that we might learn more about becoming Metacoy, 
that we might meditate over these passages, that we might uh, become truly partakers of Jesus Christ, rewarded, not falling short of the rest. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.